Hi, I'm Dr. Kevin Cheng, founder of Asana, a health service dedicated to transforming lives through prevention. Over the years, I have reflected with colleagues on what we wish people did so they can avoid pain, surgery, or developing a chronic disease. Often the answer lies in embracing a proactive mindset and putting healthy lifestyle practices into action. By doing this, the upside is not only better health, but also saving us time, money, and stress in the long run. In this podcast, I'm joined with my friend Saxon Piggott to chat with a new health expert each week. We'll cover practical ways to look after ourselves, how to prevent illness, and ways we can be inspired to live well. Welcome to Prevention Hacks, the weekly conversation where we go to health experts for advice, so you don't have to. Um, welcome, Jonathan uh, Shaw. Uh, thank you so much for joining our uh, community podcast called Prevention Hacks. And you are the Deputy Director uh, at the Diabetes and Heart Baker Institute in, in Melbourne. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with you um, in, in, in uh, years gone past. And you also chair the Diabetes Advisory Group at the Australian Institute for Health and, and Welfare. Um, you've got um, uh, international awards and recognition uh, in, in research. And it's just a great privilege to have you on the show. Kevin, thanks very much for having me on and I uh, uh, hope we can have an enjoyable uh, chat. Absolutely. So today we're, we're talking uh, about diabetes. Um, it is one of the um, biggest uh, disease areas that we are grappling with. And um, one that I note over the 20 years that I've been a GP, uh, it's rising in terms of uh, not only prevalence, the number of Australians with diabetes, but also the incidence, uh, incidence rate is also increasing, the number of cases per you know, thousand population. Uh, so there's something that is um, a big focus of attention, particularly at our in, in primary care. And we'll love to talk to you about diabetes uh, today. Um, and maybe we can kick off with a prevention question, which is just um, the, the big difference between early detection um, and, and late diagnosis and treatment, um, just painting a picture of why it's important to uh, to get in early. Yes, so uh, you know, diabetes is you know, as you said, it's a, you know, it's a it's a major health problem. Um, as a condition itself, and most of what I guess we're going to be talking about is type two diabetes. We we may touch on type one diabetes. Yes. Um, but the majority of people, when they uh, develop type two diabetes, um, are completely unaware of it. They don't have any symptoms um, or um, their symptoms may be so mild or so similar to what people experience as they age, because generally people develop type 2 diabetes in their 50s, 60s, 70s, at which point they're kind of not surprised that they're not quite as energetic this year as they were last year uh, or the year before. So it, it's, not, it's usually not obvious to people that they're developing diabetes. And if we wait for people just to have symptoms of it, um, that may actually be a complication of diabetes. That might be when it's affected their hearts, um, when it's affected their eyes, when it's affected their kidneys. Um, and that's way too late. I mean, that, that usually takes many years before that happens. And that window between it developing, or perhaps even before it develops, and the, uh, the time at which serious complications begin, that's the, the window when we can make a big difference with, uh, you know, with things that the person themselves can do, um, as well as with with medication and various checkups to prevent the heart trouble, the kidney trouble, the eye trouble, whatever that might be happening. So, 
getting onto this at an early stage is, uh, is, is critical for, uh, for reducing the chances of any of the serious consequences of diabetes. I imagine so that not uh, only is there a significant, sorry, Saxon, uh, significant I'll impact no, on, on the individual person, but also at the, as a health system, it's also very costly, uh, involves a lot of uh, specialist care, uh, perhaps hospitals and operations, if you leave it too late as well. Yes, you know, the, the costs relating to diabetes and, you know, these affect the person themselves, but, you know, uh, often affect the healthcare system even more than the person themselves, um, you know, all start to pile up at those later stages when you start getting those complications that take you into hospital, um, that leave people needing dialysis or a kidney transplants that affect their vision. You know, th those are extremely costly. Um, so to get in earlier, um, and to uh, prevent those happening, or at least reduce the risks of, of them happening. It's pretty hard to absolutely prevent uh, any of these things in 100% of people, but at least to reduce the risks and reduce the numbers of people progressing to those stages, um, uh, you know, does open up the opportunity at least to, to, to save some money. I, I mean, I have to say that saving money is not usually something that health services do very well. Um, and maybe that's not always the number one aim. Um, you know, we, we, we are a wealthy country and we should be spending our money wisely on keeping people fit and healthy. Right. So who, who should be getting um, checked out? If, if, you, if there's no obvious symptoms that you've got it, how do you know if you're someone who should go and get tested for it? Yeah, it's a re re really good question. And, um, uh, you know, first of all, the test itself is pretty easy. It's just a blood test. Um, but there are simple ways of knowing whether or not you're at risk. That There are a number of different risk tools that people can use. Uh, they can use themselves. There's one uh, we developed and it's been used widely um, uh, across the country called the OSD risk tool. And it simply asks, you know, it's, it's your age, it's your sex, it's your medical history, it's uh, whether you exercise or not, uh, whether you eat healthily, um, your height and your weight, your waist circumference. You know, these are simple things. And, uh, you know, you don't need to be a doctor to, to know the answer to those things. And you can complete those, those forms. And if you score above a certain level, you should be getting tested. Um, and, and you know, that... it, it's something that people regularly, um, you know, in their 50s and 60s should be having anyway, because age is a, um, you know, a really uh, critical determinant of type 2 diabetes. Now, it doesn't mean to say that younger people don't get it. Uh, they certainly do, and you know we may want to talk about that the the increase that we've seen in younger people, but but the risks in terms of numbers are for people as they get older, and and so that you know that's the age at which we need to start checking up for it. I'm sure Kevin, in your practice, you would you know routinely when you see 50s and 60 year olds, you know every year, every two years, every three years, be checking up along with their blood pressure and their cholesterol. You know it's not the only it's not the only condition on the planet we need to worry about, and they can all be done. In, you know, in, in one simple blood test. Yes, absolutely. That, that was going to be my question. Is is that what's happening? Kev, is that what you do? You, you, when you do an annual checkup with someone, you just test them for everything? We do a lot of screening and that's core to how we approach um, population health. And, and so everyone gets that screen, um, particularly if they've got a family history. And we, um, we try to ensure that everyone has routine blood tests and clinical measurements along the way to, to pick up those risk factors early. Um, getting in early, the more healthcare that we can provide now, hopefully we can provide less healthcare and there are less complications later in life. 
Um, I was going to ask Jonathan about um, just practical tips. Um, if you had a magic wand and as a physician who, who specializes in diabetes and endocrinology, what would you wish um, every patient who walks in the door to come see you would have had done? You know, three things that would, they, they would have done before they come to see you. Well, I think, you know, in all honesty, the first thing that I would wish is that they didn't have to come and see me at all. Um, you know, they'd never, you know, I, I'm a diabetes specialist, so I see people with diabetes. So my, my number one wish was that they hadn't developed diabetes in the first place. So for, um, again, talking about type one diabetes, there's not a lot we can do to prevent that. And, you know, we should make sure that we're not confusing these messages, there's not a lot you can do to prevent the development of type 1 diabetes. But for type 2 diabetes, my number one wish would, would be that um, people live healthy lifestyles. And I think that's not just a wish for the individual. What's become increasingly apparent over the last 10 or 20 years is that whilst we do all make day-to-day -day decisions about what we do, the world that we live in can make it easy or difficult to make those in a healthy manner. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, if, if you live in a world where it's difficult to get out and exercise, where um, it's costly or there's no decent access to parks or whatever, um, it's pretty hard to expect people to exercise. If you live in a world where you're relatively short of, of, uh, of ready cash and um, the, you know, you've got a family to feed every day, and the cheapest food, which is what you're going to have to go for, is the least healthy food. It's a problem. And, you know, so we, we can't always be putting everything at the feet of the, the individual decisions that, that people make. Having said that, we still, so, I mean, you know, that, that's very much a sort of a, a government level and, and a societal level approach to these things, which are absolutely critical. Um, but in terms of what people can do, um, uh, keeping your weight down is the... Uh, is, is the number the number one thing? Well, I guess the number one thing would not, not would would be don't get old, but uh, I, I haven't yet come across a way in which people can uh, stop that happening. Um, so you know, assuming that you can't do that, um, keeping your weight down, keeping your waist circumference down, exercising regularly, and avoiding you know foods that pretty well everybody knows are not good for you. You know, I was going to ask about that. How how bad is sugar? Okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question, Saxon, because um, diabetes is high blood sugar. And um, people with diabetes certainly need to limit the amount of sugar and carbohydrates. So sugar is just one form of carbohydrate. Carbohydrates, for example, is what makes up most of bread. There isn't a lot of sugar in bread, but when you eat bread, much of it gets converted into sugar. Um, and people imagine that because diabetes is high blood sugar, that the way of treating it, and in particular avoiding it, is not to eat sugar or to limit the amount of sugar. And that's the only sort of dietary issue that matters. Unfortunately, that's not the case. It's actually calories. So excess calories is, is, is the main thing in terms of diet that, that leads to the development of type 2 diabetes. And the reason is that the more excess calories you eat, and everybody knows this, the, the, you know, the heavier you get, the more fat you have in the body. The more fat there is in the body, the more difficulty the body has in handling sugar. It's what causes, right. it, it leads to what's called insulin resistance. So eating fat leads to a problem in handling sugar. If you can't handle sugar, 
your blood, the, the, the levels of sugar in the blood go up and that is diabetes. So it, it's actually about calories, uh, much more than, than, than sugar. Now, once you've got diabetes and you've got that intolerance to sugar, there is a bit more of a focus on sugar, but even then losing weight, however you do it for a person with type two diabetes will almost always uh, improve their, the control of their diabetes. So again, that kind of comes back to calories rather than one what one particular type of calorie so just to and clear, the other thing by the way is exercise don't. i mean you know exercise is a really critical component of this and and it it, it it is really valuable to reflect on the sort of the um the perhaps the equal role at least of exercise and um and and, and diet and one of the reasons i say that is that it's it's actually really tough to change your diet and it's really tough to lose weight. I mean, I, we always encourage it. It's really tough to do it. Mm. Um, you got to stick to it. You, you know, you've got to stick to it. Your body fights against it. You, you know, you lose weight and your body says, hang on a minute. Some disaster is happening here. With, I think there's, we're about to go into a famine here. We better preserve every, every ounce of fat and, and, and weight that we can uh, because there's some a disaster around the corner. Um, but exercise is different. You know, you don't necessarily have to lose weight, but exercise is good for you. But if you and don't have diabetes and you do have a sweet tooth, that's not necessarily going to lead to diabetes. Um, I, I would only say, well, first of all, having a sweet tooth doesn't mean that you exercise it. Um, that would be that would be one thing. And um, if by a sweet just for those tooth, of us who are interested, yeah, you're asking for a friend, right, Saxon? Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. But, but it, it is about calories. So yes, you, you can certainly eat your way to diabetes through sugar, but you can through fat as well. Yeah, okay. So moderation. Yeah. We should definitely uh, clarify that we are focusing on type two diabetes, um, which tends to have, uh, in my view, more modifiable uh, risk factors, I suppose. And, um, and a lot, you know, lifestyle change and behavior change, Jonathan, is a, is a big theme that we are focusing on through through these podcast conversations. Um, what are some of the challenges that you see in uh, patients uh, adopting uh, different lifestyle changes? As you say, you know, diet um, dietary modifications can be quite quite difficult. And I suppose part of the question is how can the health system help to promote more of that lifestyle uh, intervention that's that's required and beneficial? So I I think that the that the real interventions occur for, for lifestyle change are probably not in the health system. It's great for the health system to um, provide services and provide the, you know, um, uh, you know, the ability to see a dietitian or an exercise physiologist or all of that sort of thing. Um, but I often sort of go back to smoking and actually, you know, the, the major successes that, that we and other countries have had with smoking. You know, 50 years ago, 50% of the adult population was smoking. And now that's about 15%. 50 years ago, it was, it was normal and acceptable to walk into somebody else's home and light up. Hmm. Now people, you know, you, you, you get looked at, you, people get looked at if they're doing it outside, um, uh, never mind in somebody else's home. And, um, you know, how did we do that? Um, well, it's certainly true that health services offered some assistance. Uh, you know, there were uh, clinics uh, that, that would deal with this, and we've got things like nicotine patches. 
but but they're small beer, as it were, compared to you know the things that really made the difference, which was taxation, which was you know warnings on labels, which was stopping advertising, stopping um, the promotion of smoking products through all the sponsorships and all that kind of thing, and the social stuff. You know, it was no longer cool and on in movies and TV shows to see you know the the, the lead actors lighting up. Uh, which it was in the 1950s. So it was all of those sort of environmental things that made the big difference. And the health service sort of kicked in a little bit for those people who still found it really hard. And to be honest, I think it's the same for healthy lifestyles. Yes, absolutely. I, um, that, the smoking one rings true. I remember, um, I, I think I'm, I'm too young, but I did hear about um, a surgical consultant when I used to work in the hospitals um, back in the day, the interns would have to carry around cigarettes and, and light the cigarette for the, uh, you know, surgeon consultant um, during the ward rounds in the hospital, which is, uh, you know, fascinating to, to hear. Um, and, and the current Australian of the Year, I was going to ask, uh, James Murak is uh, promoting uh, great awareness around, around diabetes. And he's actually gone as far as to say diabetes can be potentially reversible. And, and this is sometimes we hear this from North America. Uh, how much of the current understanding around type 2 diabetes um, is, is clear around reversing diabetes once you've got it? Um, well, you know, we have actually known this for decades, but it has been much more clearly established in the last 10 years or so, actually particularly from trials in the United Kingdom. And so it turns out, perhaps, you know, this is just sort of an extension of what we were saying before. If you can make a big enough lifestyle change, um, if you can... Uh, typically lose enough weight, um, then you can at least go into remission. We, we've, we've moved away from calling this reversal uh, and to refer to it as, as, as remission because if things go backwards, you end up back where you started with, with diabetes. Um, and so various approaches have shown that this works. It was actually first really nicely demonstrated with bariatric surgery. Um, so people having surgery for, you know, uh, 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 problems with obesity, so they could lose weight. And it turned out that, um, you know, quite a lot of those people had diabetes, and particularly if their diabetes was relatively recent, they'd only developed it, and again, we're talking type 2, uh, if they developed it within the last few years, there was a reasonably good chance that if they lost 10 to 15 kilograms in weight, that they would, um, uh, th that their diabetes would go into remission. Now, that's since been followed by um, studies showing that you can do the same with really strict diets, as long as you lose the weight. Yes, yes. Um, so not everybody can do it. Not everybody can manage this. And um, to be honest, not everybody who gets type 2 diabetes is massively overweight, uh, particularly among uh, older people. And so it isn't always possible, um, but it, it, it is there and it does seem to work more for people with um, relatively recently diagnosed diabetes, at least in terms of putting their diabetes into remission. But it, it has benefits at all stages of diabetes. It can lead to reductions in medication. Even if you can't get rid of diabetes, there are people who come off insulin injections because they can get so much better control of their diabetes. It's not easy, I have to say. I mean, there are, you know, people go on to six, seven, eight hundred calorie diets in order to achieve that. Uh, I guess I mean, would the goal... Could the goal be, like, could it be motivation to try and get really fit and stay fit? 
Um, yeah, so for some people, you know, I mean, the motivation for this is, is obviously critical. And, um, uh, you know, you've also got to have the capacity to do it. And, and, and not everybody um, has that. Um, and it's, it's not so easy just to go on a couple of shakes a day and not have anything to eat. Uh, some people do it and they get great results and other people really struggle. Uh, motivation is, 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 is critical. And, you know, for, for, for some people, it's easy to find that motivation. For others, it's more difficult. Mm. One of the external motivations we see during COVID, um, uh, from what I understand, Jonathan, is um, people with diabetes, uh, and if, if they get uh, coronavirus, um, COVID-19, actually fare worse um, amongst you know, other chronic health conditions, including obesity as well. And I suppose that's an external motivation, but it also has to be, I, I'm guessing, internal motivation for that person to undertake a behaviour change or to only drink uh, a few shakes a day. Yes, you know, it, uh, you know, the threats from coronavirus, I mean, it is greater for um, diabetes. It's the excess risk, I think, is probably not as great as was initially thought. Um, some of the early analyses that came out, um, you know, things got rushed as they needed to be, you know, we knew so little, and we had so much that we needed to learn. Um, and some of those early uh, reports probably overestimated the effects. And I think, you know, people with diabetes shouldn't be overwhelmed by this. I mean, age for coronavirus, at least, uh, adverse outcomes from coronavirus, age is, is much uh, worse than diabetes. Um, I have to say, you know, it's, it's much, uh, you know, a, a, 45 year old with diabetes probably has the same risks of adverse outcomes as a 55 year old without diabetes. Right. Okay. Um, you know, and less than a 65 year old without diabetes, you know, it, it's heavily age dependent, but diabetes does add something. And that can be one of the things that will can, can motivate people. But I think, you know, the, the other thing is some people in the end really like it. And, you know, they feel a lot better when they lose weight. Um, and they feel a lot better when they're exercising regularly. You know, exercise is, is, is good for the soul. Um, people generally feel better um, when they exercise. It releases sort of, you know, a number of hormones that actually just make you feel better. It's good for things like depression. Um, it, it's about the only intervention that has been shown to reduce the risks of developing dementia. So it's, it's good stuff all around. Yes, absolutely. It's compelling. Um, I had a last question, which is around the, the future of diabetes management. What do you see in five, 10 years time and what will that look like for, for type two diabetes management? Anything exciting? Yeah, well, I, I think we're sort of, we're, we're actually in the middle now of a pretty exciting phase. And, and there, are, there are two components to it. Um, in the last four to five years, we have seen a number of trials um, of drugs that we now use regularly uh, in controlling uh, diabetes that directly reduce the risk of heart disease and kidney disease. Um, they don't just do it by making your diabetes a bit better. Um, they seem to have a direct effect. And for some of them, at least, it's the biggest effect that we've seen from drugs in decades. Uh, so much so that, in fact, these drugs are now being tested in and, and with some early positive results in people without diabetes to prevent heart disease and kidney disease. So I think we're seeing a, uh, we're in the, in, in the midst now of um, a real 
change in how we approach the treatment of diabetes, who we choose to give which treatments to, and, and what our successes will be. I think that's, that's one part of treatment. Um, another part of treatment, again, in terms of, of medications, is that we're starting to see medications, um, which are some of which are directly for diabetes, but other are f uh, directly for weight loss, which actually leads to weight loss that people would like to see. You know, until now, drugs for weight loss have led to reductions of two kilograms, three kilograms, four kilograms on average. And often come, coming with them is a bunch of side effects. Yes. What we're now seeing is drugs that can potentially lead to five to 10 kilograms of weight loss on average, um, whose side effects are actually benefits. So the side effects are controlling the blood sugar levels or reducing heart disease risk, not increasing risks, which is what we've seen previously. Um, so um, it's, it's not clear where this will go. I don't think anybody or any society would like to imagine that, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the population is on drugs to control their weight. Sure. Um, but uh, um, there are certainly a good number of people who are really struggling to do it any other way. And I think we, we may have some, some real um, uh, medication solutions coming through. But, you know, we've got to go back to where we started, which is, it, you know, the, the real uh, um, foundation of this is lifestyle and a society and an environment that pr promotes a healthy lifestyle. That's What's the time frame for some of those cures? Is there a, is it, this is obviously it takes a while to bring things like that to market. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, um, they're, they're not cures. It's, it's a really common question. You know, how long is it going to be until we get a cure for X? Um, and I often say to people when they ask me that, as far as I know, I think there have only been two discoveries in human in, in the history of human uh, of humankind of um, cures for diseases other than cutting it out. So if you've got appendicitis, you can have it cured by having someone cut out your appendix. If you break a bone, you can have it cured by having someone uh, realign the bone. But in terms of of, of um, you know treatments that cure diseases, yeah. I, I think I actually think there've only been two. So <laughs> I've no idea what it, what's that antibiotics. Yeah, antibiotics and some forms of chemotherapy. Right. Apart from that, um, I, I've said this to a few people and nobody's ever actually come up with anything that we've ever been able to, 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 to think of anything else uh, uh, for me. Uh, so I think it's only twice. So, you know, when is there a cure for uh, being overweight? When is there a cure for diabetes? I've got no idea. Could, could be 500 years for all I know. Um, so start but, exercising now. Yes, but, but when it, so some of these medications are already available. Um, and some of them look like they're only a few years away um, from being available. And, and one of the nice things is that a number of them are actually based on our own hormones. So, you know, that, they're, they're not so external to us in, in, in terms of, you know, the likely safety of these things. Fantastic. Jonathan, thank you so much. I, I have loads and loads of questions around diabetes, but we'll, um, we're mindful of your time and maybe we'll get you back uh, again, as a as another uh, at another time as a guest uh, to talk further um, and particularly cover other topics like heart disease as well. So thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast, and we look forward to having you back on again. Thank you so much. Great, thanks for inviting me.